Hey, everybody. How's it going? Dan Schinder here on Yes Shift with... Steven Schinder. And our guest, we are so honored that legendary music critic and journalist Chris Welch is taking time to join us. Chris, welcome. Thank you so much from the south of London, right? Absolutely. A pleasure. Yeah. Way down south Great. in London. Awesome. Folks, if you're watching us live or even on the archive, chime in. Tell us where you're watching from. Throw some questions out for Chris. He's worked with, it would probably be easier to name who you haven't worked with. Uh, but for you drummers out there, you're going to find this interesting. When Chris joined Melody Maker way back in the Stone Age, 1964, even I was very young then, his trial interview was with legendary drummer Joe Morello. We'll get into that a little later. I've got to ask you about that. But then your first couple of interviews were with the American vocal group Shangri-Las, with my, my, the Shangri-Las my wife just loves, and uh, er, a flash-in-the-pan artist, Eric Clapton, bless his heart, from that short lived band the Yardbirds, some people may have heard of um all the way to fast uh, forward to working with kerrang and megadeth and motorhead and iron maiden the list just goes on and on led zeppelin if some of you have heard of led zeppelin yeah. or led zeppelin peter grant yes <laughs> goes on and on and chris i have to tell you i loved your book before we get to keith's book i gotta tell you i loved your book yes close to the edge the story of yes I borrowed it from Stephen. I loved it so much, it took me four years to give it back to him. Oh, <laughs> And the reason I didn't buy my own copy is because there was something special about reading the one that Steve had. I thought you were going to say it took four years to read it. But, oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> but, you I was know, very proud of that. Yeah, very pleased to have yeah. been asked to do that. Yeah. Just some wonderful uh, works through the years. But um, I'm going to let Steve kick it off, getting into this amazing really amazing work of art, the way you've arranged the storyline of the book for Keith. And we had Aaron Emerson and his wife, Joan, last week, but now we get to hear from the author. So Steve, take it away with Chris. Right. So first off, for those who may not know the whole story, um, how did you first become aware of Keith Emerson and his playing back in the day? Well, I first met Keith back in 1967. I'd seen him playing with uh, a band called the VIPs and before at the T-Bones, that was his own groups. And, uh, but I didn't know him then. I just saw him on the stage at the rock festival or in the club somewhere. And of course, he was then just playing Hammond organ. And uh, then there was a band that I used to play with, actually, or I write about, called The Attack. Uh, with a singer called Richard Sherman and a guitar player called Davy O'List. And uh, I thought they had something, you know, they were going to be a hit, but they weren't. Uh, and then Davy phoned me one day, the guitar player, and said, uh, we're getting a band together. Would you like to come and have lunch with us? So uh, I went to their flat, which was in Earl's Court, and a uh, very cracked, tiny little flat upstairs. And there was a, an upright piano in the corner. And sitting at the piano was Keith, Keith Emerson. And that's how we met. Wow. And uh, we, didn't actually, we didn't actually talk. He just played me the piano for a minute. So you, you both must have been, I, I guess, like mid-20s then, right? If even that, if even that old. Yes. Like 23, I'm, 25. I'm older, yeah, I'm a bit older than Keith, but uh, I was born in uh, 1941 during the war. So, uh, yeah. so I think, yes. Yeah. Right. So, um, yeah. So we're, we were both Scorpios. I think that's how it got on. So, uh, oh, both nice. Of, <laughs> the birthdays. That's great. And, 
Yeah. What was it like witnessing in real time the evolution of Keith from the nice to Emerson, Lake and Palmer from like the 60s or 70s? Well, the great thing about the nice originally, I thought they were one of the first progressive rock bands when they did that album or immediate records. And uh, the, uh, the single they did, Thoughts of Endless Dadjack, which you've probably heard, I guess. Yeah, I've listened to it. It's great. Yeah. yeah. Great fun. And uh, it was a wonderful group. I, uh, I used to go and see them all the time, but their first gigs in small pubs. And then eventually the Marquee, which was the showcase gig in London. And, so uh, wait, back up a moment there. How interesting, Chris, is it to have seen an artist that you saw at the Marquee in small pubs and then like Wembley? I mean, that's got to be pretty, pretty mind blowing when you really look back and put that in perspective, right? Yes, it is. Uh, well, the whole that era was mind blowing. Really. Um, as a reporter on Melody Maker, it wasn't just the nice and Emerson Lake Palmer. I was covering all the other bands that were all becoming successful by the same route rooms. I think that was the thing with British bands. They had that training playing to small crowds in pubs and that kind of grounded them a bit and learned how to appeal to an audience. And, but at the same time, be experimental, take risks and insist yeah. that they can play their own music. That's the great thing about all of those bands. And uh, that's why I call it progressive rock, actually. I think I'm guilty of giving it that name. Yeah, I think uh, it's, it's interesting that when you look at from pub to arena, what that says about how much music and live music means to people to have seen it evolve to that over the years, when the economy really allowed for that, you know, these days there's not as many uh, jets waiting on the tarmac for bands and truckloads of brinks, you know, with gold bricks backing up to people's homes and front doors. But it, it says a lot about what that, that music movement meant and especially progressive rock and being being the person credited for that term for someone that landed from Mars or say uh, Leicester for that matter or Wyoming, how would you oh. describe pre uh, progressive rock? Well, freedom, I think, is the first thing. So, and, mm -hmm. and bringing together all the strands of music that uh, you know uh, adventurous musicians would want to listen to. You know, people who actually studied their instruments and wanted to play them better. Mm -hmm. um, because rock and roll was great, and uh, you know the simplicity of the average rhythm and blues band was terrific as well. But um, these were musicians like Rick Wakeman and uh, Keith Emerson, Ian Anderson, Jethro Tull. They all had roots in classical music and jazz as well. So bringing them all together, the strands of that type of music, uh, those different types of music wasn't so unreal uh, if you think about it and there was this great freedom coming from america too like frank zappa uh -huh. and, uh, and the whole hippie era you had to be free and you had to experiment i think that's what was underpinned the whole progressive rock movement yeah that movement. we want to explore and do something new so much came out of that era that still is so ahead of its time one of my favorite examples of that is Carnival Nine, you know, those three, the trilogy album, Tarkus, and and over to Yes with Close to the Edge and Tales from Topographic Oceans. Any one of those pieces I mentioned could come out today and they're mind-blowingly ahead of their time. You know, it's just only by the sound of the production in most cases could one who has a seasoned ear sort of pinpoint about when it came out. 
But aside, you know, sonic qualities aside, just by composition and performance and, and lyrics, they're, they're timeless. They really are. They are, yes, extraordinary music. And the great thing, I think, is the fact that they were given freedom in the studio. You know, the... Yeah. Then the Beatles and Stones era, it was still pretty much three minute singles that you were expected to do. And they did miracles right. that, of course. But, and then suddenly you were allowed to sit with, say, Eddie Offer, the engineer, uh, and, and the, it's, in the studio, AdVision in London. I yeah. And you could sit there for hours, you know, you weren't restricted to a very short session. Yeah. So, and w I saw earlier that uh, 49 years ago today is actually when Topographic Oceans came out. So like, oh, even wow. today, people are still talking about it. Um, but, 49 um, years. Just yeah. that long. Oh, my God. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it'll, it'll, it'll be 50 next year. Oh, so that's kind of true. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and also Emerson, Lake and Palmer, you know, their legacy has still transcends some um, Unfortunately, I also saw earlier that six years ago today is when we lost Greg Lake. And, you know, oh. it's really sad today, that gosh. we lost yeah. him as well. But their music is still talked mm -hmm. about. Like, they were so influential on the prog rock movement. And, you know, that's still alive today, which is very gratifying to see that this genre is still going strong and still fondly remembered um, yeah. all those things back in the day. And of course, Greg was a very important part of ALP's success by being a fantastic lyricist and a wonderful singer, yeah. all-round yeah. musician, guitar player. Yeah, and, uh, it's tragic to think that that's the anniversary. Awful. Yeah. yeah, interesting. Um, are there any stories from the road from back in the seventies or sixties, even that you're able to share, like with any of those guys? Well, yes, uh, because I went to their first um, performance at the end. Well, it was the second, actually, but it was the, the one that was regarded as their first showcase. It was the Arnold White Festival in 1970. Mm -hmm. And I was filming it, actually, with my little uh, cine camera. Oh. And I saw the moment when the cannon went off, which was very funny. And they had this <laughs> brass cannon and they exploded. Well, there were two, two brass cannons. Right. And there was an Italian photographer jumping on the stage where he was not supposed to be there. He was desperate to get a close-up shot. And uh, he was standing right, right next to the cannon when it went off and it blew him across the stage. Wow. <laughs> it was only in harmless gunpowder, nothing too, like, not too explosive. But, uh, uh, and that was, of course, the breakthrough for us. And then the audience went mad and the press mm. wrote it up. Well, I certainly wrote it up. And uh, henceforth, ELP became a, a supergroup, yeah after that second gig, very fast. Well, after that show, Chris, literally right after that show and people are walking back to their cars and whatnot, what was the chatter like? Because most people had never even heard uh, a piece of music by them. And then here's these three gentlemen on stage just playing mm -hmm. mind-blowing. What was in the air that night? Well, yeah, I think you could sense the excitement. Um, that uh, I was right in the front row, so I don't know how they felt back. <laughs> you could certainly hear the cheering and the, or the yelling. And uh, it was an incredible bill. I mean, it was uh, Jimi Hendrix was on that bill and uh, The Who did an amazing set as well. But Emerson, Lake and Palmer came on just the right time and it was dusk. Ooh. So, uh, you know, when the sun set in and 
people are cheering and yelling and they've not heard anything like it really you know yeah. they may have a few nice fans in the audience but for everybody else it's a revelation it and literally catapulted well, their career yeah and from then on of course they were doing they weren't going playing small pubs anymore they were touring i was very fortunate i was invited to go on tour with them I went to New York and saw them at Fillmore East in New York. I don't know if you ever managed to get there. Did you, Dan? Do you ever I didn't know. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned Jimi Hendrix, and I think if there's ever a person that knows the answer to this question, it could certainly be you, Chris. Okay. Is there any truth to that myth that Jimi Hendrix was considered to join the band and they were going to call it help? Or did all that just stem from them being on the same stage at the Isle of Wight together? Uh, well, of course, they'd been, uh, Keith had been on stage with Jimmy at the Royal Albert Hall when he was in the Nice. They did one of those ah. packages, and, which were quite extraordinary. It was like 15 minutes per band, Pink Floyd, 15 minutes. So they, got minutes. One, they each got one <laughs> song, yeah, all along the Watchtower, yeah. <laughs> and Jimmy was very impressed when he saw Keith's uh, playing, you know, especially when he was tipping the Hammond organ up and rolling it around the stage, showmanship. And, uh, yeah. Jimmy, he was the, uh, that Keith was the Jimmy Hendrix of the Hammond organ. Which yeah. Fun. Can you imagine at the same time if that were to happen, Keith rocking the Hammond organ, sticking daggers in it while mm. Jimmy's teething his Stratocaster and then lighting it on fire. Like, what is show? That's almost too much. <laughs> I think there would have been too many egos there. I think yeah. He thought he would have tolerated that. But funny enough, the uh, Keith Rohde told me he fixed rollers on the Hammond organ. Make it easier. It weighs a ton, doesn't it, a Hammond organ? Yeah. So just, that's how we got it across the stage, on rollers. Small ones. But, uh, yeah. but whether, whether uh, sorry, whether Jimmy would have uh, got involved in this and then is that what you're thinking? That yeah. Might have yeah, if there's I any truth to that myth. No, I don't think so. No, I think they were yeah. looking at uh, Mitch Mitchell's drama. That was on the cards at one point when they were looking around for drama. And uh, I think they may have come to a rehearsal. I'm not sure. I went to one of the early ELP rehearsals, actually. Oh, wow. Near the drama, yeah. I just remembered them, actually. It was actually there the, before they played a gig. Wow. And uh, they did um, a, a tested car, and they had to play 21st century schizoid man. Oh, how interesting that they would try that. But it makes sense, something that at least Greg knows and Keith could play. That's cool. Yeah. And Carl was very uh, worried about it. Because I knew him from drumming with uh, The Crazy World of Arthur Brown. And uh, he was a fantastic drummer. I'd go and see him whenever I could. Right. And then we got the gig with Atomic. No, it was Atomic Rooster for a while. Atomic Rooster, and then right. Played, and I was in the studio and then rehearsing. And he's, he'd been up all night trying to remember how to play 21st Century Schizoid Man, which Greg wanted to do. And they played it, got through it, remembered all these terrible, tricky rhythms, right. and then they never played it on the gig. Right. They dropped it. How interesting. <laughs> it's his test. Yeah. Going back to the new book for Keith, and I'll show some images while we're talking about it. One of the things I've mentioned to Steve, and, and by the way, we read it literally together while we were on a trip together. It was the most quiet we've ever been in a room for two hours together. We were both rifling through reading it. Um, yeah. And I mentioned to Steve, and I mentioned this with Joe and Aaron, 
What's interesting to me about the style and way you assembled this book, and then Steve will ask you some things about the process, is that it's not like there's many different people that appear in the book, but it's not like this person's whole. So it's not like Alan White's whole story, then Rick Wakeman's whole story, then this. It's everybody as they appear chronologically in the entire timeline. And I love how it's arranged like that. It, it made it a lot easier to sort of keep track of things and see how pieces fit together over time because there was many things I read about, but then there were many more things inserted in between that helped stitched all those things together over the years. thought that really was interesting. Yes, it's like a, a tapestry, isn't it? And, yeah. Uh, actually, uh, I can't claim credit for all of that, I have to say, because Mal Pichy was the editor of, uh, from Rocket 88, the publishing company. And, ah. uh, when we first discussed the book, um, he said he wanted it to flow. Uh, so it wouldn't be just one person's view and that's it and then move on to the next person. So I did all the interviews over a period of about, I think it was about six months actually, and uh, very intense. Uh, Sounds so like it, yeah. People, but very personal in this. And uh, you sometimes wonder, will they want to talk about this, you know, about Keith's demise and what happened to him and his life story and talking to relatives. It's all very emotional for me, actually, as well as, uh, you know, for the reader, I think. Uh, it's quite an emotional experience. But uh, yeah. I think it worked the way you described it. That's what happened. And Mel Peachy, the editor, was uh, very instrumental in making sure that all my interviews sort of, uh, they weren't just packaged up and dumped. You know? that, that's great. <laughs> Mel did a, a genius job of that. And I love how, actually, for me, credit Steve for putting it that, in reading it, it's just like watching a documentary where you're cutting back and forth to different people throughout the timeline rather than, like you said, packaging each interview separately. It works yes. so much better. It's great. And I'm going to show some uh, pictures while you guys talk about the product. It's beautifully put together. Mm. Right. So that that pretty much answers um, what I was wondering, which was how long it took and what the process was like. Um, but were there ever any challenges in the course of writing this biography? Uh, yes, there were. Yes, obviously, when I was speaking to Murray, he's his uh, partner, and uh, we had to discuss what happened to Keith in his final days and, mm. uh, when he was suffering uh, depression and uh, taking antidepressants, and he was very concerned about his health. And, and we wanted to establish, I wanted to talk to Murray about what Keith's mood was and why he did what he finally did. As we all know, he took his own life, which was right. disastrous and tragic. But um, she was very kind and very uh, sensitive and explained to me um, quite at length, actually. We didn't use all of her interview. I have to say it's much longer originally, but obviously there's some personal things probably best left unsaid. Right. So uh, to you know, for everybody's sensitivity, and, uh, but uh, she she did describe to me um, Keith's mood and uh, came to the conclusion that it was really about the problem with his hands, particularly his right hand, which had been developing over some years um, when he'd had an operation on it, which probably not a good idea if you're a pianist, you know, messing about bones and muscles and. Uh, yeah. You know, I don't think it was a wise decision to do that. In fact, Carl Palmer, I think, advised Carl Keith not to have an operation on his hand in the first place. But yeah. 
Yeah, then in there, well, without going into all the details, but it can be read in a book. <laughs> yeah, but, right. but that was an emotional interview for me. Yeah, the Mari was very, very helpful in uh, understanding it and uh, described Keith's mood and the events that led up to uh, him taking that fatal decision. Yeah. I want to thank you for sharing that and thank Mari for being so brave and spending that time with you. I met her the same night that I mentioned to you before we started that I met Keith, which was in Beverly Hills at Carl Palmer's Art Reveal, where I interviewed oh, Carl the first yeah. time. It was back then. And then I've I've seen her a couple times since at a couple of guest concerts. And and Mari, if you're watching, thank thank you for your comments on our previous interview with Aaron and, and Joe. And and thank you again for opening up with Chris because you know we can only imagine how sensitive that was, but you're very brave for sharing your story with everybody. Thanks. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. And the book also, um, it does a great job of illustrating the type of person Keith, you know, he's very good humored and it was just nice having those moments and seeing all those different accounts from all the people you interviewed felt like, you know, really getting to know him and what his, like jokey sense of humor was like, and I, I really enjoyed that. Yeah, because oh, most people great. only see who we think is on stage or mm -hmm. in the video. We're on the album cover, you know, especially back in our older days, Chris. And and we we come up with a model of that world that often is just a construct. And when we get that peek beyond the curtain, like you've so well done with these interviews, like Steve said, you really get to know the person and and it was so nice to read so many kind anecdotes about his personality, how he was as a father and a husband, a, a partner with Mari and just how he was with bandmates. And it, it was very, very revealing and all in a positive way. Yes. It was fun talking particularly to people that worked with him, like Rocky, the roadie and the wonderful stories he told about yeah. getting lost in, in a hotel new york and breaking in did you read that story <laughs> it did, yeah <laughs> and the guy is right in there in the bathroom <laughs> and we get insight into the, uh, the special effects like the burning of the piano that's a great story yeah um, mm. and i wow one of the things i really well i don't want to spoil this so i'm not going to say a little thing but folks <laughs> one of the one of the things not a complete spoiler but there's a, to me anyways, a mind-blowing, surprising thing about the twirling piano. So if anyone's familiar with the twirling piano from when the Cal Jam shows, there's some interesting things about that in there that made me just go, whoa, had no idea. So no matter how much you think you know about Keith or ELP, there's Ooh. some really, really neat stuff in here that are were just beautiful buried gems. Ooh, great. Chris, how about <laughs> yeah. for you? Having been attached to that world for so long, was there something that came out in any of the interviews that surprised you or was new to you? Um, I think there were, yes. There were uh, moments I was surprised at. And, uh, yes, you think you know somebody. Uh, the thing about Keith was that he was a, such a daredevil. You know, we were painting a picture of him being depressed. That's not how he was most of the time. Right. He had an sense of humor. And uh, he was great at um, playing practical jokes on people. There's the story about his ancient house that he, had, he owned, this beautiful baronial uh, map with Eleanor. And uh, they lived in the country and they had this very old mansion. Well, it's not a mansion, it's more like a, 
15th century cottage, I suppose. Right. And uh, he invited guests to stay in the guest room overnight, and uh, he had to have a room next door to the guest room. Oh, before they went to bed, he said, by the way, you know the house is haunted. And, he would uh, tell us ghost story <laughs> first, prime <laughs> them. That's right. And then, of course, the guy goes to bed and he hears this horrible moaning and groaning and clanking chains. And <laughs> it's Keith in the next room, rattling in the... The adjacent the, uh, closet, closet wall, right? Yeah. Basically. <laughs> Which yeah. I thought was funny. Yeah, yeah that, that's a good one for sure. That's funny. When yeah. I met him, uh, and I'm going to show a picture that you won't be able to see until you watch the replay, if you do, but I, I met him, talked to him a bit, and then I did my interview with Carl. Then we hung out in this art gallery that was a beautiful old, almost like a library in someone's home almost. And I went over to a bookshelf. My wife and I collect books. We have old books. So I'm a bookworm. I'm looking at the bookshelf. Now the corner of my eye, I see Keith walk up looking at books. And I'm not going to bother him. Yeah, I'm just there looking at books. And then he says, hey, Dan. And I, I, turn, I said, yes. And he holds up... Um, Neil Zalwauser's book, Fuck You. And he, oh. <laughs> he says, I think this is for you. I said, oh, okay, thanks. I said, let's get a picture together with it. He says, yeah. well, I said, come on, come on, let's get a picture. So I give the camera to Lori Shub, who was the uh, chief digital officer for Trump Talk TV for years. And, and Keith's not smiling. I says, Keith, please smile. Uh, he says, only if I get to give the finger. I said, we'll both give the finger. So that's the picture I'm showing. He's holding up the book. I got my arm around him, and we're both telling everyone that they're number one. So there you go. So I learned in, in just the short time I spent with him that he did love the sort of practical joke aspect, but it was also very, very kind and almost shy and, and soft-spoken and soft-hearted. And Having met him for the first time, I thought, I don't know if that's how he is all the time. After reading the book, I felt like I met the real Keith Emerson, and that was yeah. very heartwarming for me. Right. Yes, you can get that from all the musicians that you work with. They all have. Yeah. That's what we would say. Jeff Skunk Waxton, and, uh, he's yeah. very full of praise. They only played together for a short while, didn't they? Jeff yeah. Skunk Waxton from the City Down. And he was saying he described him as the greatest keyboard player in the world, which I thought was great. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What's interesting is the first time I became aware of Keith Emerson, um, you know, I was born in 1994, so I'm, I was pretty young. But in about early 2008, uh, I got the classic artist uh, Yes documentary, which I'm oh, yes. holding up yeah. here. and. You know, Keith was in that and you as well. Like all of the interviews in this are great. Um, I understand. Yeah, I understand this was a series versus one on Cream and one on the Moody Blues. What was that whole project like, if you can talk about it a bit? Yeah, so it was a whole series of interviews, which was wonderful for me, going to America and uh, tracking down all these uh, wonderful musicians. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like the Moody Blues and uh, out. Denny Lane, that was fun. We went out into the desert. We went to Las Vegas to film an interview with Denny Lane. And, uh, oh, wow. We went out into the Red Desert. Yeah, but I didn't get to go gambling, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, well, the funny thing, we, we interviewed Denny, uh, the crew, and, me, and, uh, and then we wanted to find the nearest bar we could find. And there was the, uh, like in the Wild West, really, it was out in the desert, and we found this bar. And there was this chap walking on his own playing the piano, and he was really good. 
and he was playing like Elton John. And, and then he thought, this is fantastic. And we all started cheering and joining in. And uh, I think we thought we'd, he'd been discovered. We'd made his day. Nobody else was listening to him at all. So oh, out wow. of the blue came this British prog rock band. <laughs> about what year was that, Chris? Uh, it might have been that one, actually. I can't remember when we did it, actually. Yeah, it was a few years ago. Yeah, yeah. We come up with a little bit of a burn. Interesting. And Mike Pinder played um, the opening right. for Go Now. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. Remember absolutely. That? Yeah. So yeah. that was fun to do, yeah. And we met Eddie Offord when we were doing the Yes uh, documentary on his oh. yacht. We had a yacht down in right. South Carolina. Yeah. And it's freezing cold day, and he was buying me a beer, you see, lager. And I had to keep rushing to the loo every uh, five minutes. <laughs> oh, <laughs> this is rather embarrassing. That's funny. Yeah, um, I see a couple of comments. Uh, Peter De Amore says, I loved Chris Welch on that DVD. Um, I assume referring to the Classic Artist Yes DVD. And... Uh, uh, another author, Dave Watkinson, says, a legend of music journalism. Hi, Chris. Thanks for just doing what you've always done. The Melody Makers movie such program was great. And uh, he also asks, when is the Chris Welch autobiography going to be a thing? For goodness well, sakes. <laughs> I keep asking me that. And uh, the trouble is I keep ending up writing other people's biographies. But so um, no, I should do it. I'll do it. Yeah, I'll do it. I have a lot of memories, as you can tell. So uh, I'll be very happy to do that. That's yeah. awesome. That's awesome. Um, for our Drum Talk TV fans and other fans of drummers and other people very interested in your very beginnings, how did that trial interview come up in 1964 when you joined Melody Maker and they wanted to, I guess, try you out? and gave you Joe Morello, legendary jazz drummer, possibly the first drummer along with Papa Joe Jones to ever do a drum solo on a drum set with his hands. And of course, of the famous Dave Brubeck band and the famous track Take Five. What was it like getting with Joe Morello? And and how old were you then? You would have been about 23, right, Chris? Yeah, about 23. Yes, that's right. Yeah, I've been a reporter on a local newspaper for about four years. And... Uh... I was always writing about the local bands. One of them is the Rolling Stones from Dartford, our local band. So, uh, did they, I've never heard of it. Did they go far? Uh, I think they did far. Well. <laughs> I gave them a very good review. So. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I was writing. And of course, at that time, Bo Diddley and Chuck Berry and Rhythm and Blues was happening. And right. there were lots of blues bands. So and I started writing about them on the local paper. One of my colleagues said, why don't you go and get a job? on a, a weekly music paper, uh, about four or five then, mm -hmm. NME, Musical Express. And, uh, but I'd always read Melody Maker. That was my favorite paper because it covered everything, all styles of music, jazz, rock and roll, blues, Beatles, Stones. Nice. So amazingly, uh, they had a vacancy. And I wrote off and I applied for the job. And, uh, and I told them I was a drummer and I was a journalist. And I could type. That was, a, that was useful. And uh, the editor said, well, okay, we'll give you a test. I went up to the office on a Friday and he said, well, there's this uh, band called the Dave Brubeck Quartet in town and there's a drummer, Joe Morello, and nobody knows what to ask drummers. None of the staff here are into drumming. They were playing trombone or something. <laughs> so they said, uh, could you go to the, I think it was um, 
Park Lane Hotel or the uh, one of the big hotels. The Hilton. It's the Hilton. Oh. Park Lane. And on a Sunday night, could you go and interview Joe Morello? So, as it happened, he was one of my favorite filmers. I was going to ask. That's great. Yeah. I loved uh, Sounds of the Loop was my favorite drum solo. Nice. Oh, yeah. Which I had on EP, which I still got. Just beautiful piece of drumming. Revelation. And, of course, the famous left-hand technique. Yeah. Dancing. With the traditional grip. Yeah. And it was just, uh, I thought, wow. Yes, I'd love to go and interview Joe Morello. And I was very nervous, actually. It was up on a dark, I think it's quite a wintry night, up to the West End and... Uh, and found Joe in his hotel room all alone. And uh, he said, excuse me, I, I have a visual problem, meaning that he couldn't see terribly well. So he, that's the person he told me. So, oh, because okay. I know his glasses were quite thick lenses, right? They were, yes. He was wearing these very thick uh, glasses and uh, he, he put me at ease. He was very friendly and polite and uh, gentlemanly. And we sat down and had a really nice interview. No tape recorder, unfortunately. It's all scribbled notes. Oh. Scribbling notes. And, uh, they hadn't invented the tape recorder there. That's funny. Yeah. You'd have to have a Those small table. portables, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Walkman, that's what I meant to say. That right. Anyway, Joe was very, very good, very nice, and uh, I had to rush home, write the story up, and type it out overnight. Go up to the Melody Maker's office in Fleet Street on Monday morning, gave them the copy, and they said, how did it go? And I said, it was great, very nice. And, uh, and they used the piece, it was about 300, 400 words long. And to my astonishment, it appeared in that week's issue with a big byline, and the headline was something Joe had said to me. You don't have to be an idiot to play the drums. <laughs> <laughs> I think he was thinking about some rival drummers. That's so funny. Idiot. Yeah. yeah, that's hilarious. He would have been what, maybe, was he like 10 years your senior, Chris? Yes, he would have been. Yeah. Yes. So he'd have been like low, early 30s, yeah. But I knew as a journalist, you have to get take one quote out and use it as the intro. And, made a good headline i thought but yeah that's so just one of the back in those early days would you have well with this interview in particular and then subsequent ones with eric clapton then the shangri-la would a photographer have gone with you or would you were you also responsible for taking the picture if there was to be one at the session well i've often thought back how primitive the way we operated and um no, I didn't take a photographer with me. I didn't have a tape recorder. It's all scrolled notes. I'd come back covered in ink. My, uh, that was my... <laughs> <laughs> my thumb was always covered in ink from notebooks, old pyros, leaky pyros. But that yeah. first week on Money Maker, of course, that got me the job. Joe Moreno got me the job. They That's said, great, great. you're on. You know? And uh, can you start Monday? And the first, one of the first groups I met what was the Shangri-Las. They were great, wonderful, yeah. And then the next band I interviewed was uh, the Yardbirds. And oh, nice. They all, all came up to the office. Um, in those days, people would come to you to be interviewed. You didn't have to go and see them. Yeah. So and Eric I, was in the band. Was Jeff hmm. Beck still in the band? No, this is uh, pre-Jeff. This is uh, the young, very young Yardbirds with, Jeff, uh, with Eric Clapton and Paul Samuel Smith, Keith Ralph, mm -hmm. Chris Dreyer. Chris Dreyer. 
party, drink party. Yeah. And uh, we all went in a coffee bar on Fleet Street to do the interview. And uh, I remember Paul, the bass player, saying, can't we go to a pub? It was quite disgusting. Yeah, time. So, uh, and then Eric was standing slightly to the side of the, the group. They were all be, very noisy, like kids, you know, shouting and making a scene in the coffee bar, being funny. And, uh, funny. And uh, Eric sort of looked at me as if to say, I'm not with this band. So, uh, he was very cool and uh, very smartly dressed. And, uh, just slightly uh, apart from the rest of them. That was the vibe I got. Mm-hmm. You seem to have lived up to that as well, right? Yeah, and they had this single out. Uh, uh, what was it? Good morning, little schoolgirl. That was the song. Oh yeah. well, okay. going way back, yeah. And they said, "We hope it won't be a hit." Why? And they said, "Well, then we'll lose all our fans because you know fans are very pernickety about um, credibility. If you were a pop star, you didn't have credibility." Right, right. <laughs> right. You were a bubblegum, not a rocker. Yeah. <laughs> so I went to see the Albers. Few months later, after that, the record was smiling it, and I went to a club in Bromley, actually, my father, and a small club, not many people there. And Eric Clapton looked really fed up and bored. And uh, I went over, I said, You don't look happy at all, what's the matter? And he said, Oh, you noticed, did you? You noticed. A few days later, he left the group, so uh, that was like uh, oh, wow. a hint. <laughs> he quit. So did you develop a relationship to some degree over the years, being that you then worked with Cream? And uh, I, I would think that probably happened with a few different people who you worked with over and over and over through their careers, right? Yes. Well, I was very fortunate. My job consisted of going to a club and seeing a band every night of the week mm-hmm. and right. having a drink with them. So not many jobs like that, actually. Right. So. Sounds grueling. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, yeah, so I got to know the albums very well, and uh, Martin and Five, and uh, so many bands. Uh, Spencer Davis Group, I remember. Mm, Stevie Winwood. And, and uh, we'd all go to the pub to do interviews, and by then we'd switch from coffee bars to pubs. And, uh, but with um, Eric, Eric Clapton, uh, he went off with John Mayle, and I saw Eric with John Mayle's Blues Breakers. And, he changed his appearance. He looked more menacing somehow than he had been in the Yardbirds for a moustache and a beard, I think. I think he had a moustache. So, and he had this aura of being this remote kind of godlike figure. That's hence God suddenly appeared and painted on all the walls. Oh, wow. Um, Interesting. So, I've heard God play. Yeah. yeah. Looking ahead, what might we see from you in the somewhat near future that you can talk mm-hmm. about what bands or uh, or music works from you well yes uh, well i've done a talk about um ginger baker i haven't told you the ginger baker story yet did i no tell you that? i would okay. love that yeah, yeah. <laughs> well at the melody maker one day ginger baker who i've interviewed for the grand bond organization he rang me and said oh i have left ginger baker i've ginger baker i've left grand bond and uh I'm forming a group with Jack Bruce, and Eric's going to do it as well, Eric Clapton. And I wrote this story about this super group with the three of them, and all the managers with the various artists all rang up and said, it's not true, because they hadn't bothered to tell the bands they were in that they were leaving to form another group, and none of the managers knew. Oh, funny. So uh, they denied it all, and then Robert Stigler 
actually to Poland and said, no, it's true, they are forming a band. Would you like to come and see them? So I went to Cream's first rehearsal. Wow. How did they get on? Did they get on well, okay? It, it was very funny. It was in a church hall and, uh, covered in dust. And, uh, there was, you know, like brownies, girl guides, young girl guides, and they were at one end of the hall jumping about doing uh, whatever it is girl guides do. Oh, funny. <laughs> games. We were playing games. And, uh, and at the other end, Ginger Baker had three drum kit, just three drums, and uh, and Jack and Eric, and they were doing a, a blues, a couple of blues songs. And they started arguing immediately. You made a mistake there. You did that wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and Robert uh, Stigler, their manager, came over and whispered in my ear, and he said, are they any good? And uh, I said, yeah, yeah, they're great. They're going to be fantastic. Don't worry. I often thought if I told Stigler that they were a load of rubbish, that you might not have signed them and not recorded them. So at that moment, I uh, saved them, I think. That's amazing. You know, I think, Chris, that it's fair to say very possibly that band, first band, I think, billed as a supergroup, I think that band had the largest impact on the music of the time and generations of musicians of any band that short-lived. You know, in such a short time, the amount of material they cranked out and the impact it had, I don't think has ever been matched or will be. No, it's very years, and uh, which is their second album. Yeah, that's right. And uh, well, of course, they they were all the best musicians around. That's why I called them super. They're all yeah. great. Ginger was a fantastic drummer. Jack was a great singer, harmonica player, and bass player, and composer. Yeah. And to Pete Brown, their lyricist. Um, I mean, the uh, you know they just took off immediately. I, I did see him playing in the uh, inevitable pub gig. That was fun, yeah. Yeah. Their reunion concert was brilliant. It's one of the best shot concert films as well. That's just a great film from 2006 or five or something. I did that one as well. I just remembered that. Yeah. 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 At Radio Music Hall. Just a great, great film to watch. I'm going to have to break that out. Yeah. Have you seen Um, that, Steve? Have you um, seen that? I may have, it's possible I may have seen clips of it. I don't know if I've seen it in full. It's great. It's great. And and Ginger's solo for Toad is just captivating. They, it was so yeah. nice to see them as older gentlemen doing what they started out doing together and just really blowing the roof off. Just yeah. fantastic yeah. performance, fantastic filming. Right. Um, another thing we wanted to ask, uh, we, we mentioned it earlier, uh, the book Close Viege, the story oh, yes. of Yes, and... Um, I've read many books, so like I'm not exaggerating when I say this is one of my all-time favorite books. You know, just giving in-depth look at Yes's history up to that point that this updated edition uh, came out. Um, one of the things I was wondering is, with all the different interviews and different ways people remember things, how does one juggle contradictory accounts of? certain events like how do you make those calls when it comes to putting the whole story together especially with so many members yeah. in and yes out and... yes yeah well when i knew them when there was just the, the original you know the peter banks on guitar and 
right carrying on organ and that's when i first saw met them all and then as the years went by gradually more and more people came and went and it's like a, a big family it's a huge family tree isn't it and uh, yeah. so by the time i came to write the book i had all the, uh, the different artists and contributors to yes as well as the originals john and chris and bill and uh tony back tony k yeah <laughs> sorry genesis <laughs> and uh, yes, it became a, like a. Actually, I'll tell you what happened when I started writing the book. John Anderson said to me, yeah, "Just make it funny. Said, <laughs> Don't be too serious." <laughs> so that was good advice. Um, but there were contradictory reports. Even that's that's right. It was, um, sometimes you had to sort of edit things out that people might say. It's a bit of criticism from Bill and Chris, Esquire. And the first edition of the book, and uh, I think Chris was a bit upset about that. It's all about women on the road and uh, traveling together, and uh, musicians do get on each other's nerves often. It's understandable. People turning up late for the gig, or oaks sleeping, or certain habits, you know, terrible driving skills, <laughs> crashing the van, that sort of thing <laughs> could cause problems between them. So I think what happened was I was talking to Bill and he was complaining about something Chris had done and I actually quoted him and I know Chris was a bit upset about that. So we took it out of the later edition. So. Mm. Right. Yeah. So uh, you have to be careful when you're a journalist. You know, you, you can't edit everything out. You know, you've got to leave the, the important facts there that uh, just occasionally you have to think about people's feelings, sensitivity, mm. be aware of that, I think. Yeah, it really is a balancing act. Yeah. In your own writing, Stephen, do you do you find that problem when you're writing? Um, well, I'm mostly a fiction writer, but like just from researching things for our show for Yes Shift, when I have to look up the context of when certain things came out and what people said, I sometimes find like, oh, they said this, but they said that. So, like, what's the real? story like, yeah even when a person funny. contradicts their own statement from another time that's the funniest Ooh. i won't mention yeah. any rick wakeman names but sometimes that <laughs> just happens <laughs> yeah it's, it's funny when i talk to musicians years later and i say well do you remember that time when you were ill you had to cancel the show and say, Ill? oh no i just didn't want to do it <laughs> <laughs> the original story that's relatable <laughs> how funny okay well chris thank you so much for spending so much time with us especially in your evening this wednesday and uh, we'd love to have you on again sometime and maybe uh, do almost like an anecdotal series with you telling stories from different interviews and stuff that didn't end up in books uh, even yeah. though it's somewhat of a family show, we can stretch it a little bit. <laughs> but we really appreciate it. And we've both, Stephen and I, really have enjoyed uh, this wonderful book about Keith Emerson's life. And folks, the link is in the post. Yeah, uh, no matter Keith where you're Emerson watching. KeithEmersonBook.com. Yep, KeithEmersonBook.com. Wonderfully put together. Uh, wonderfully edited by Mal. And, of course, input from Aaron and Joe Emerson and all the other people that were around and still around from Keith's life. Thank you so much for that, Chris. Well, thanks, Sharon Shevin, for connecting us with you. Thank you, Sharon, as always, so much. And Chris, hang on the line, 
And um, while we say goodbye to everybody, goodbye, everybody. Thanks for following Stephen and I so much on Yes Shift and on Drum Talk TV. And you can check out the audio-only version at anchor.fm at Yes Shift. And you can write us at yesshiftpodcast at gmail.com. And you can write questions, comments, suggestions there. And for Drum Talk TV, it's team at drumtalktv.com. Thank you so much, everybody. Happy holidays. Yeah, and tune in tomorrow for our interview with Claire Hamill at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern U.S. and 5 p.m. U.K. time. So, yeah, she has a new album out, Mm -hmm. and she also guessed it on the Steve Howe album back in the 70s. So we're hoping to get more crazy Steve Howe stories. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, everybody.